Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big, dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 62, Hammond, recorded here on August 3rd, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. I would like to offer a continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible albums on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Buzzsaw Party Boy, and our outro is Black Licorice. Corrections today, in episode 60, Almost Paradigm, I said that Nedry didn't turn off the fences in the movie when, of course, he did. What was I thinking? Oh, Arnold also turns off the power, but Nedry turns it off first. So my mistake, I'm sorry. Uh, when I suggested that Justin Bieber's music was trash, that was unfair. Ludwig von Beethoven has retorted that, quote, music should strike fire from the heart of man and bring tears from the eyes of woman. I mean, a couple guys were literally convicted of a murder plot against Bieber in terms of the, the fire of the heart of man. And you can measure the, the, the tears shed for, for Bieber by the imperial hogshead at his concerts, uh, if you're asking about the, the tears from the eyes of women. So if that ain't music, I don't know what is. And finally, I was recruiting a co-host for the podcast and made a mistake when I suggested that the qualified candidate would have a master's degree in philosophy or equivalent work experience. One cover letter responded, even while they teach, men learn. And yeah, that might be the right answer, but nobody likes to know it all, buddy. All right, in dinosaur news, it's time we get to that new enantiornithine critter I was putting off. From the journal Cretaceous Research in April 2023, authors described Yetanavis iugensis, which they say is, quote, the youngest occurrence of an enantiornithine bird. When something is considered youngest in the fossil record, that means it's the briefest amount of time ago, making it a species discovered in the latest of late Cretaceous rocks to ever bear an enantiornithine. The paper also says its discovery in, quote, southern Santa Cruz province of Argentina makes it also the australmost enantiornithine specimen recovered to date, which translates to the southernmost. So it's the youngest and most southern enantiornithine yet described. The name is derived from the Aeonikenk words for stone and snow, which are Yatin and Ioju, respectively, where Aeonikenk is an old Patagonian language and the Latin words Avis and Ensis uh, mean bird and from, respectively, making this the stone bird from the snow. The holotype MPMPV23086, housed at the Museo Padre Molina, was uncovered from the Chirillo Formation of Argentina, and it's comprised of a partial humerus. There you go. Just a little bit of its leg is the only thing they know about it. This represents the eighth enantiornithine from South America, and it would have a body size comparable to that of a sparrow. The humerus bears similar features to other late Cretaceous enantiornithines known from all over the world, including Madagascar, North America, Patagonia, and Central Asia, which calls to memory Dr. Darren Nisha's comment about the Sierradactylus remains being viably discovered from northern digs, even though their fossils are known only from South America presently. Animals that can fly can have incredibly large distributions, so that's fine. Uh, the second news story is also about a little guy, but this one is bigger than a sparrow. The new, it's a new basal Neornithischian dinosaur, Minimocursor funoiensis, which was discovered in a late Jurassic Fu Kradong formation in Thailand. Quote, it is one of the best preserved dinosaurs ever found in Southeast Asia, where Ornithischians are somewhat rare compared to Cerisian contemporaries, which was reported in the Dinosaur News of Episode 51, Ornithischian Dinosaurs in Southeast Asia, a review of the paleobiogeographic implications. The Latin words minimus, and cursor lend their meanings of the smallest and runner, respectively, to its name, whereas its generic name, Funoiensis, means it's from the Funoi excavation site. 
Thus, it's the littlest runner from Funoi. Reminds me of the, little, the littlest hobo. This little guy could be scurrying around, helping townsfolk, curing injustices, and making new friends before moving on to his next adventure. The holotype PRC-150, housed at the Paleontological Research and Education Center in Thailand, was uncovered from the Phu Kredong Formation. It's a partially articulated skeleton comprised of a series of vertebrae, a, a few ossified tendons, the left scapula and manus, the entire pelvic girdle, left femur, tibia, and fibula, left tarsals and metatarsals, the right jugal, left serangular and angular, incomplete tooth, right femur, tibia, and fibular, phalanx, and a pedal ungual. When placed through the phylogenetic analysis machine, Minimocursor pops out amongst, quote, the most basal neornithicians. Placing this creature helps provide a, quote, better understanding of the early evolution and taxonomic diversity of ornithicians in Southeast Asia. A basal ornithician would be the forefather of the iguanodonts, ceratopsians, and pachycephalosaurs emerging in the Jurassic. Neornithician teeth permitted them to break down tougher plant food than other animals in its peer group, like the early thyreophorans, which would develop into the brutish ankylosaurs. This would have been a small-bodied bipedal animal similar to what you might consider a hypsilophodon for Jurassic Park fans. You can picture them leaping around in the hypsilophodon highlands in the book. But Minimal Cursor is informative because previous to his description, the earliest Asian neornithicians were from the Middle Jurassic of various formations throughout China. This late Jurassic form represents the earliest record of neornithicians in Southeast Asia, the first dinosaur taxon name from the Phu Kredong Formation of Thailand, and is one of the best-preserved dinosaurs ever found in Southeast Asia. Quote, this finding increases diversity and helps to elucidate the evolution of basal neornithician dinosaur in this region. Plus, quote, many of the remaining bones are still under preparation, including another skull. These unpublished specimens may provide a better understanding of the biology of minimal cursor in the future. So, there are a lot of reasons to be excited about that little discovery. Okay, with the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. My guest today is a vertebrate paleontologist, an honorary member of the New Mexico Geological Society, and the curator of paleontology at the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science, which boasts more than 70,000 cataloged fossils, including world-class collections of non-marine Triassic, Cretaceous, Paleocene, and Eocene vertebrates, as well as the author of several books, including Dinosaurs, the textbook, Chinese fossil vertebrates, and Dawn of the Age of, the, of Dinosaurs in the American Southwest. I want people to please welcome Dr. Spencer Lucas. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. I appreciate this. My pleasure. So this is interesting. Dr. Lucas and I met during a secret Santa gift exchange, which I'm really bad at, but uh, you gave me a very considerate new pair of stylish sunglasses that I still use every day, and I gave you old Mexico, even though it turns out you had plenty of new Mexico already at home, so I'm sorry about that. No, they ask the question, if it's not new and it's not Mexico, why do they call this place in New Mexico? <laughs> but we know the historical reason, because we were, this area was once part of Mexico. Right on. So. Yes. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting spot. <laughs> I've been looking into it. It, it sounds really cool. Um, it's, it's one of the great paradises for paleontologists. Oh, cool. You, know, you turn on Discover, National Geographic, whatever, you see people in Mongolia, Argentina, Montana, you also see people here. We're very similar. We have a tremendous fossil record. A lot of the state is dry, high altitude, so we have a lot of bedrock exposed. So just the opportunity to go out and look for fossils and you know, pick your time period, anything from the Cambrian to the Pleistocene. You know, you can drop in and there's all sorts of fossils 
in all those different time periods. That is something. So uh, I guess we'll start off. Uh, this is a podcast about Michael Wrighton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park. Uh, perhaps we'll kick off with a, with a quick and easy question about, you know, what is your relationship with the novel? What is uh, your familiarity with the film? My relationship with the novel <laughs> is I read it. Yeah. The whole thing. I read it 30 years ago. In 93, when the movie came out, Already there were local media clamoring, oh, we want a paleontologist to come on the radio or whatever and talk about this movie. So I thought, well, maybe I better read the book. So I bought a cheap paperback. I took it home one weekend. It's an easy read. And um, then I went and saw the movie. And I have to say, I saw the first movie. I think, I can't remember, I might have seen two of the sequels. But I found the sequels remarkably disappointing mm. compared to the first movie. So I was never driven. Like the one that last came out, out whatever that was recently, I, I didn't even think about going to see it. Mm -hmm. you know, but the, the first movie was really quite fantastic. And, you know, I, I was thinking about this discussion and I thought, you know, what is the one thing I really remember about that movie? And, and here's something that really struck me. Uh, early in the movie, Sam Neill, who plays the paleontologist, they're at the Jurassic Park and they're in a Jeep and they're driving around, but he hasn't seen a dinosaur yet. And suddenly it's like they turn the corner and there's this huge sauropod dinosaur there chomping on a tree. And he, he plays it perfectly because I'm sitting in the theater and his jaw drops, my jaw drops. Mm -hmm. He finally sees something that he had only ever seen in his mind's eye, you know, and all. And to top it off, the dinosaurs in that movie 30 years ago were the best dinosaurs ever. From a scientific point of view, there were some, we can talk about this, there were some, uh, how should we put it, some artistic license with some of them. But by and large, you know, when you see that sauropod, it's like, oh my God, that's what I think it would look like. And and you, you can tell that that's what's going through his head. You know, he just cannot believe that he's seeing a live dinosaur, you know, because I, you know, none of us paleontologists now ever think at least in our lifetimes, there'll be a time machine or whatever it takes to go back. Mm -hmm. uh, I, the idea of cloning dinosaurs or, you know, the whole premise of the movie, uh, that's definitely way beyond any kind of technological capabilities at, at present. And so, you know, that, that was a really great moment in the movie. And uh, I give credit, you know, to the writer, to the director, to and Sam Neill did a great job mm -hmm. of playing that scene. There's something know. really, he captures the idea of being awestruck. There's, uh, I know um, <laughs> we're at an airport, we met, do you know Terry O'Quinn, uh, who was in Lost? He played uh, one of the villains in Lost. We met him at an airport. My wife got so starstruck, she couldn't speak. And uh, <laughs> and you shake, and if you get that excited, and just to be T truly awestruck. It, it, it is a physical affection on you. And uh, to see him drop to the ground and not know what to do is, uh, you're right. He portrays it so well. Beyond awestruck, he's blown away. Yes. I mean, by that scene. And that, that to me, that's I connected to that as a paleontologist. You know, that that's really something fantastic. I mean, every once in a while in the past, people found something alive that we all thought was extinct. But it was never a dinosaur. It was a plant. <laughs> there was a turtle that was found, and and yet and and then of course famously the fish, the coelacanth, and the stories of those discoveries are similar. You know, the the scientist who first saw that coelacanth was just couldn't believe it. You know that this fish, which had been thought this kind of fish had thought to have been gone extinct at the end of the Cretaceous, 
like 65 million years ago, some guy fished it up off the coast of Madagascar in the 1930s. And then they brought a zoologist from the whatever university was nearby. And this guy, I mean, I read an account and he fell to his knees. He couldn't believe it. Yeah, right. It's a huge discovery. I, I, I think the only thing that's going to beat it in discovery land is when we, we get a true alien, you know, in, in front of us, you know, some extraterrestrial creature that will be perhaps even more mind blowing mm -hmm. than something from the past like this. And boy, doesn't it feel like that's just around the corner something good? <laughs> Isn't that crazy? You have to wonder, don't you? I mean, yeah, I, I wonder about that. I mean, and, and I'm saying this coming from the state where Roswell is yes. located, you know, and I've been, there's a UFO museum in Roswell. And, you know, I always like to say this is this is a uh, open secret. This museum I'm at, the Natural History Museum in Albuquerque, is the most attended museum in New Mexico. We have about a quarter million people who come here every year, year after year. But the reality is the attendance figures for the UFO Museum in Roswell are actually higher than ours, at least in some years. So we like to say we're the most attended museum in New Mexico, and then we kind of <laughs> ignore UFO Museum in Roswell, if we say that, because it's quite popular. And the, the, the people in Roswell, the city fathers, whatever you want to call them, got really smart. Now they have a UFO festival every July. I've been wanting to go. But you got to plan way in advance because you can't get a, hotel, a motel room within 100 miles of that place, you know, when, when that thing happened. But that said, um, going back to Jurassic Park, yeah, it was a remarkable movie. And the other thing I would say I wanted to say about it is, when I read the book, you know, the genius of Michael Crichton was, and I always say this, really great science fiction is almost always based on a seemingly plausible premise. Mm -hmm. So the science behind Jurassic Park seems very plausible. Mosquito bites a dinosaur. Mosquito gets trapped in amber. We get this fossil mosquito out of the amber. We extract blood. In the blood, there's degraded DNA. But we somehow combine it with the DNA of a frog, and boom, we've got dinosaur DNA. Now, there's a lot of, you know, sort of jumps or leaps, technological and biological, in that chain. But when you think about it, it sounds very plausible. And then, boom, you have the whole story goes from there. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think, you know, he wrote that book around that premise, and it's a genius premise in my mind, because it, it really does seem, and I, we still get questions. We still have people saying, hey, when are you guys going to have a, a living dinosaur? Aren't you guys working on... And, and there are people who've worked on dinosaur DNA. who who've, And di dinosaur DNA or some fragments of it have been found, or at least blood or what remnants of it. But nobody's anywhere near, as far as I know, you know, unless there's a secret lab under a mountain somewhere in Alaska, you know, where the UFO... Uh, <laughs> where they, what, what was the guy called? Biologics. Yes. That's a... That's an interesting, that's a, to me, that's a military kind of term. You know, no, I mean, I, I'm a paleontologist. I, I actually have degrees in geology, but I took a lot of biology. So I've never heard any biologist refer to humans or any living organism as a biologic. <laughs> and mm -hmm. then the question from the congressman or congresswoman was, a, non, a human biologic or a non-human? And the guy says, non-human mm -hmm. biologic. And it's like, oh, here's, E.T. is here. But, um, yeah, the movie uh, was based on a great premise, and of course, it was beautifully produced. You know, it had very high production values, and the quality of the special effects was really to die for. You know, and I, 
I, I always think to me, the iconic scene is, is the T-Rex, you know, pushing the car around with the kids in it and then chasing the Jeep. You know, that, that that's one, and, and of course, well, and I forgot, and of course, reaching into the outhouse and pulling the <laughs> lawyer out, which is, these are really iconic moments in the movie that are, are will never be forgotten. To me, they're classic. You know, they're almost as classic of scenes as, as Humphrey Bogart telling Ingrid Bergman on the runway, you know, you know, you need to lead with, with Victor Laszlo, not me, right? That's probably the most famous scene in all of cinema, perhaps, or one of them. But these are really iconic scenes, you know, where the T-Rex is running after the Jeep. And of course, there's been a long debate. It's not resolved. How fast could T-Rex run? Paleontologists have never really decided the answer to that. There's a group that thinks, yeah, pretty fast, 30, 40 miles an hour. Another group, no, no, they were slower, ponderous kind of animals. Mm -hmm. And um, so that kind of plays into that because at some point, the guy puts the Jeep in third gear and boom, he leaves that T-Rex in the dust. <laughs> it's a good question. I know that the, yeah, when they do studies, they, they, there's different, they, the results give them different answers. Like if it were running, but it were also eight tons, uh, that's trouble because <laughs> you can't stumble or else you break every bone in your body. But at the same time, they look at the foot and they say, well, this foot's perfect for, for doing incredible things. And, uh, yeah. and so just, that's the problem, you know, the problem with that, and it's an interesting issue is, you're trying to do the, the estimate of speed purely from what would be called biomechanics. The reality is if you wanted the best speed estimates, you'd have footprints, you'd have trackways. But nobody's ever found much of a trackway of T-Rex. I mean, we have, a, in fact, there are very few footprints of T-Rex, bona fide footprints now. The first really bona fide footprints of T-Rex were found in New Mexico. They were found in the northeast part of the state by, um, uh, a geologist working there and published about 30 years ago. And I, I've actually seen the track. It's huge, but it's one track. Mm. One mm. track, you can't get speed. But if you had a lot of, and you know, the thing is, if you had a lot of trackways, you could estimate speed. But probably what you would find, because this is the case with most dinosaur trackways, the speeds you get are just normal walking speeds. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's not that common, even among the wide range of dinosaur trackways to find trackways that give you a, a running, a very fast animal. There are some, but they're not very common. So then the question is how many T-Rex trackways would I have to find before I got one running? And then I can say, oh, with the trackway, I can very confidently estimate the speed of the animal. Yeah, and plus you're not gonna do your Olympic time trials through the mud and leave, leave really good trackways right. behind it. But you know, the other good thing is of course, T-Rex is a biped and it's a lot easier to estimate biped speed from trackways than it is to estimate the speed of a quadruped from trackways. Mm -hmm. Whatever uh, it was doing, they were huge. They leave tons of remains behind, suggesting that they were they were all over the place. Like they were obviously very successful, so they were, they had to be certainly fast enough <laughs> to to do whatever they needed to do and do it very well. So there's yeah. that. <laughs> sure. But then the but that see that still begs the question: What is it that <laughs> yeah. they have? I mean, that's why, you know, if the, uh, Jack Horner some years ago suggested T-Rex was a scavenger and that's been kicked around. I think most paleontologists reject that. I mean, I certainly reject it. When you look at T-Rex, like you say, you look at its skeleton, its teeth, it, it, it looks like a very active, very dangerous predator. That's not to say it couldn't scavenge. Lions will scavenge on occasion. It's just, you know, was it primarily a scavenger or primarily a hunter? And I think most paleontologists think it was primarily a hunter 
And the idea that it was a scavenger has never really been widely accepted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't imagine, like, for example, like a shark being a scavenger. Just it's, it's strange <laughs> to think that you would have mechanisms that are built that sturdily to, to uh, just a scavenge. Absolutely. So um, you get to work in, in the Badlands of New Mexico. Nowhere have the Badlands received better names, <laughs> I think, than, uh, than when you got in New Mexico. You have the Ghost Ranch, which is the home of a Coelophysis atrocity, where hundreds of dead Coelophyses were found in a dinosaur graveyard. You have right. 400 ghost towns in your state, uh, and there's a localities that are named like Il, El Infierno, which is the hell. Sal, is it Salsipuedes, Sal which is get out if you can. Uh, Rancho Sin Fortuna, which is the bad luck ranch. Uh, El Purgatorio, which is obviously the purgatory. Uh, it sounds like a tough place. What's it like working in the Badlands of New Mexico? I think it's like working in the Badlands in a lot of places because I've worked in other places. New Mexico has extensive Badland areas, particularly in you know rocks that we're talking about, Triassic, talking about Ghost Ranch. Uh, Cretaceous, what are you talking about, Cretaceous dinosaurs? We have a lot of Jurassic rocks, but we don't have a big Jurassic dinosaur record. Um, we have big Cretaceous record, we have big Triassic record. Um, the difference between here and the Badlands, you know, is mostly climate. You know, if you go to Montana, Wyoming, I've worked in Wyoming, it's a lot cooler. You have a much shorter field season, you know, given the weather. Here, you know, our field season is optimal usually in the spring, April, May are great months, then in the fall, October, November. What happens here in a normal year, whatever that means, um, in July, August, and into September, we get what's called the summer monsoon, which is to say almost all, all the rain that falls in New Mexico falls in those three months. And that pattern seems to be breaking down. You know, I've done field work in, this, in New Mexico since I was an undergraduate in the 70s. So I got a long history of doing field work here. And it used to be, we knew what the weather would be. We knew it would never rain in May. But this year it rained a lot in May. You know, and I, I've been, I worked in foreign countries. I worked in Kazakhstan. I worked in play, I mean, where there are big badlands. And I even worked in countries with no badlands, like Costa Rica. And that's its own experience, you know, when you're in the jungle looking for stuff. But yeah, the Badlands here are really nice and uh, they're, they're great to work in as long as you catch them uh, during the right weather and when it's not too hot. Because like right now, it's, it's quite hot and uh, I would not be out in the field in a lot of places in the state. Oh, yeah. It... Plus trying to like navigate with like volunteers and getting them suffering through the heat stroke. It might be best not to do that. Yeah. Well, and I'm hey, I'm not a, I'm not I'm no spring chicken. So um, I, you know, some years ago, twenty years ago or so, I was out in July one day, and it was really hot. And I came back to Albuquerque, and it was 104 here, and a little light went on. You know, a little light bulb went on. I said, Why am I in the field in July? I'm a curator. I don't teach. I don't have that kind of academic schedule, which forces a lot of my colleagues to only do field work in the summer. Mm. I can do field work pretty much any time of the year as long as I schedule it out. So I've tried to minimize doing field work in June, July, August, because June normally would be very hot. That would be when you get the hottest days. July, August would be the peak of this monsoon when you get a lot of rain. And I can work in the rain. I've worked in the rain. But the big problem in the rain is the dirt road you use to get to the field or get out oh, of the field. Yeah. Here, where we have clay roads, the clay has a little bit of volcanic ash in it. So when it rains on it, 
it turns into this very sticky mud. And I can tell you, um, I've, I haven't been stuck a lot of times, but I've been stuck a few times in the mud and I know others who have. And so you have to really be careful with the rain in terms of your access in and out of the field. I gotcha. Now I have a question. This might be for somebody who is not a vertebrate paleontologist. We'll see. But uh, if we go back into the, the Permian rocks, uh, that's what I'm working on now. Is that what you're doing? Okay, excellent. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not, I, you know, I don't primarily work on dinosaurs. I, I, I've, I worked a lot on the Triassic, on the Mesozoic, but I work more on problems of biostratigraphy. I'm mostly working on the Permian these days. All right, right. So ask me a Permian question. <laughs> okay, so if we start there, um, when we go back and we're looking at back then, we're talking maybe 280 million years ago. So you just get that pre-Triassic period then. Is New Mexico underwater? And I guess what kind of, what story is, is, uh, is are the rock formations telling you about what, you know, uh, the very end of the Paleozoic era there in, in here in North America was like uh, back then? Well, most of the rock record we have here is early Permian. We don't have much of any record at the very end of the Permian. So we don't have a record here. And basically in North America, there's almost no record of the end Permian extinction because the rocks are simply missing mm. in almost all places. So what we do have is the Permian here begins with a fairly wet climate. And you have to remember at the beginning of the Permian, there were still ice ages in Gondwana, down near the South Pole. So it's still a glacial world. And then early in the Permian, probably a few million years in, all the ice sheets collapse and the ice age is end. And so then what happens is things start to get drier and you get an aridification that you, you see this in the rocks and you see this in the fossils. So by the end of the per early Permian, things are pretty dry. There actually are deserts here. There are big dune fields in what's now Northern New Mexico. There's an arid coastal plain, a very broad, low relief area that's very arid, has little dunes on it, and all, all the way down to the famous Permian Basin. And then you have the Permian Basin, which is in West Texas and Southeastern New Mexico, where, you, where things are marine, where you still have a, these marine environments. So the early Permian here is, is interesting environmentally because you have this, this, this uh, range of environments from inland deserts to wetter floodplains, to shallow, uh, probably very, very tropical seas, because at the time, you know, all the continents are assembled into Pangaea, and New Mexico is almost smack dab on the equator in western Pangaea. So the Permian in New Mexico is, is truly the Pangaean tropics, which then start to dry out as we go into the uh, rest of the Permian. And that's not actually unique. That aridification trend. We see it in Europe, we see it in parts of Africa on the rock record. It may really be a Pangea-wide or a global phenomenon, mm -hmm. that climate change. So when you've got that super continent, uh, obviously you'd have uh, water on this perimeter, but you're right, once you start getting inland and there's nothing but <laughs> the entire world's mass of all the land, uh, was it just atmosphere had trouble getting in there and it would be just super dry in the center? Or what would you expect in the kind of in the center of a Pangean supercontinent? Yeah. I don't know if there's an easy answer to that. <laughs> sure, I believe that. I'm not sure how well we understand it. What we do understand, or we think we understand, is as we go into the Permian, uh, people have called this the Pangean Mega Monsoon. And it's the idea that the big supercontinent would pull moisture in around its edges. And the thinking is there were basically two seasons on much of Pangaea. There was a wet season for months, 
then there was a dry season and it flipped back and forth. So the Northern hemisphere would be wet while the Southern hemisphere was dry and then you flip it. Hmm. And um, the aridification though is also in part due to the fact that the ice sheets collapse. And so when you change from a glacial to a non-glacial world, so it sounds like something that's happening today, sort of, yeah, it really is. I mean, um, you're gonna change climate. But I think one of the problems we have understanding Pangean climate is we really don't understand or fully agree on what the topography of Pangaea was like. And the, one of the biggest things we don't agree on is how high were the mountain ranges? You know, because wherever you smash the continents together, you almost surely produce a mountain range. So there were big mountains in Pangaea, but, and my opinion is, the opinion of most geologists is that they probably weren't real high. They might've been a couple of thousand feet, maybe 5,000 feet was a really big Pangean mountain, but that's not agree on. There are scientists who think there were Pangean mountain ranges that were like the Andes, mm. you know, more than 10,000 feet. And the Andes are the result of plate collision, although they're, they're a marine, uh, an oceanic plate colliding with continental. So that's one of the reasons we don't really uh, fully understand Pangean climates and what's driving it. But to me, that's all part of this bigger problem that a lot of people are talking about. We don't really understand the climate system even today as much as we'd like to. It's a very complex business. So when you, if you think about climate today, you know, we know, for example, that vegetation has a huge effect on climate. Okay, what was the vegetation of Pangaea during the Permian? I can only tell you what it was in the places where we find fossils. And if I plot those on a map of the globe, they don't hardly cover maybe 20% of Pangaea or something like that. Mm -hmm. So we're on further, you know, when we look at Permian Pangaea or even into the Triassic, because Pangaea doesn't start to really bust apart until around the middle Triassic, I think we have a good handle on a lot that went on in a sort of Europe to American zone, you know, paralleling the equator, maybe 10, 20 degrees north, south of the equator. That's where most of the rock and fossil record we understand comes from. Then we have other records. We have records in places like Brazil, South Africa, China. They tell us things too, and they often tell us different things than we see in this Euro-American zone. So that, that's one of the big challenges is, is to ask yourself the question, what we understand about this narrow zone, how much can we extrapolate from that to cover the rest of the Pangaea? Mm -hmm. you know, what do you think the vegetative cover in, in the deep interior of Pangaea, which would be a place like, you know, Oklahoma or something like that. To me, that's, or, or you know, or, or even New Jersey. You know, without an Atlantic, everything's pushed together. New Jersey's going to be a place that's really within the interior of Pangaea. Well, there isn't much of a Permian rock record that I know of in New Jersey. So then it becomes really, you know, you have to uh, extrapolate or infer whatever, you know, phrase you want to use. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. You know, I always say to people, climate's the biggest game in town to me in science right now. You know, if I was a young person and I wanted to get into a really exciting, well-funded, big opportunity science, I'd get into climate science at some level. And, then, and you can do climate science. You can be everything from a chemist to a, 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 some sort of meteorologist to, you know, different kind of geologist or whatever. And ancient climates 
like we're talking about are even harder to understand than current climates because we have so few data compared to what we know. And we know the distribution of vegetation on Earth today. Mm -hmm. We know exactly because we've satellites have photographed the whole planet. So then you go back 200, 300 million years and you say to me, okay, what was the vegetation? Like I said, it's, it's difficult, but people are working on it. We're trying to understand it better. You know, everybody from what I would call the modelers, there are people who will take just the map of Pangaea and they'll try to feed in data. They'll put vegetation on it. They'll put elevations, whatever, and try to model the global climate. And those are interesting exercises, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, connecting the dots or filling in the blanks that has to go on to get there with that. Mm -hmm. I'm not that interested in climate. That's not what I do research on, but I do appreciate it's it's extremely interesting. It's very important. Well, you know? and, and it's a big part of Jurassic Park as well. A lot of um, what uh, the Ian Malcolm character is talking about is about how computers and computations and predictability and modeling was designed to help us understand weather models and climate change or climate and things like that. And, uh, and how he was like, you know, throw your hands up in the air. There's just too much data. It's hard to ever know. And this is kind of the, the foundations of his, of his chaos theories. Like we just, how would you ever figure that out? And, uh, today you're right. You're still, people still working really hard. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I'm glad you brought up chaos theory. Cause you know, think about chaos theory. It was, nobody talked about it just 20, 30 years ago. And now we understand that chaotic behavior occurs in a lot of natural systems. And it's very hard to predict it. It's very hard to model it. You know, I'll give you an example. Um, if you go out in the rocks, say you're going to collect dinosaurs, most of the dinosaur fossils that we find are found in rocks that were deposited by rivers, you know, river floodplains, river channels. So years ago, uh, a, a lot of scientists who call themselves sedimentologists started looking at river channels saying, okay, can we measure things about the sandstones that represent the channels, how thick they are, how wide they are, you know, the different bedding in these things. And can we model how big is the river? What was the velocity of the water? And they started doing this in the sixties when nobody thought about chaos and they finally gave up on a lot of that probably by the eighties. I know in the seventies, when I was in college, people were still, I was taught this stuff, you know, Oh yeah, we can, look at the grain size of the sand and figure out the velocity of the water. But people kind of walked away from it when it was realized the system was too complex and chaotic to be modeled that simply. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, uh, paleontology is, is sort of the intersection of geology, biology, and you're bringing together these two natural sciences. This is not physics. This is not chemistry. This stuff doesn't happen in test tubes and everything can be controlled. It's very complicated. And, um, a lot of the arguments we make, you know, like if you say to me, why did the dinosaurs go extinct or, you know, how did they go extinct? How was there the extinction at the end of the Permian caused? The way we do it mostly is we just do it by correlation. So, you know, at the end of the Permian, the biggest volcanic field in, you know, a billion years or something blew up in Siberia. And it blew up right at the time of the end Permian extinctions. So right off the bat, you know, you got a lot of people saying, well, that's probably the cause, but correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, as you know, mm -hmm. but then you get into, and so I would say to you right now, if, if you are, were in the uh, scientific meetings and reading the literature on the end Permian extinction, there's broad agreement that the volcanism did it, but there's not broad agreement on the exact mechanism. 
what exactly about all those volcanoes blowing up caused the extinctions. You know, and that's it's the same thing with the end of the dinosaurs. Okay, almost, you know, there's no question an asteroid or meteorite, whatever, hit the Earth. But there's never been full agreement on what happened after that. Mm -hmm. You know, and you know, there are different models. You know, oh, it, we know where it hit, or at least one of them hit. There may have been more, and so it hit hit in the ocean. So, but still, it lofted a huge amount of rock and whatnot into the atmosphere, and so you have everything from you know, people saying, well, okay, that blocked the sun. You've got this so-called nuclear winter that plowed under the dinosaurs. But on the other hand, where it hit in the Gulf of Mexico, there's a tremendous amount of gypsum underneath the ocean floor. And when that gypsum was, was hydrated and thrown up in the atmosphere, it, you know, it formed, uh, gypsum is a big source of sulfur, so it formed sulfuric acid. So the, 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 there's the idea there was just this killer acid rain after the impact. I mean, can you imagine it raining sulfuric acid? I'd rather not. Not, yeah. not a good place to be. <laughs> not a good place to be. You know what I mean? So, you know, and, and this is what we've we've known about Chicxulub for 20 plus years, you know, 25 or so it was mid 90s or something, you know, and we still don't have agreement on the exact mechanism. So that's one of the problems, you know, we face in the historical science that is geology, paleontology, et cetera, is we can correlate events. This happened when this happened, but then it's the next step to go in and say, what might be the causal relationship between these things? Mm -hmm. Dinosaurs went extinct, no doubt about it. Big rock hit the earth, no doubt about it. Okay, connect them, explain to me, you know, exactly. And, and the answer will be, yeah, there's some connection, but there's more than one possibility about what really happened. And, and it's hard to eliminate some of the possibilities because, you know, it, it, if, it's, if it's dark for 10 years or 100 years after the impact, what's the evidence of that? Mm -hmm. What independent evidence could there be of that other than all this stuff dies? But all this stuff could have died from sulfuric acid rain. doesn't have to freeze to death, you know what I mean? All right. Well, here's another question. It's uh, it's another non-vertebrate question, but uh, from the Permian rocks, uh, do you find insects and fossils and things like that? Specifically, do you get uh, the dragonflies? I was uh, seeing in, in in Jurassic Park there is um, that famous giant dragonfly appears to yeah. our heroes, uh, and it's uh, one of the Meganeuron. I see that they're from France. Or that species is anyhow. Is there any records of uh, of that type of animal or creature or insect uh, from New Mexico in the Permian rocks? Um, not here in the Permian rocks, no, not, not those giant insects. We do have insects. We mostly have a lot of bugs who were living in lakes. They weren't flying. And that's not to say these things weren't around. Most of those giant uh, dragonflies and all are a little bit older than Permian. They're mostly Carboniferous or oh, wow. Pennsylvania age. The Permian is an interesting time for insects too, because for example, you know, the first beetles, the oldest beetle fossils are Permian. And, you know, beetles are the most diverse animals on earth. I mean, they're just, they're gazillion species of beetles, you know, and so they're, they're very important. You know, there was a famous uh, uh, geneticist, uh, a British guy named Sewell Wright. And, and late in his life, he was asked about, you know, what did he think God, you know, evolution showed about God? And Sewell Wright said, it showed that God had an inordinate fondness for beetles. <laughs> God liked beetles. So he created a, 
a gazillion beetle species. But yeah, we have some really good insect fossil records. And one of the most fascinating ones is we have a bunch of fossil cockroaches. Okay. Of Permian age. And you know, it's amazing. They, they, they look like cockroaches. You know, if you see the fossils, they look just like cockroaches to me. And I'm not a big fan of cockroaches, but I like a 300 million year old or 280 million year old cockroach on a rock. That's the kind of cockroach I can uh, relate to. So yeah. we, we have a pretty good insect fossil record, but not much of a record of flying insects. Okay. Well, this one, he says, uh, so I looked up what a real meganeuron was like, and it said something around like 70 centimeter wingspan. He, in the book, gives it a six foot wingspan, which would mean if you were to look at a dragonfly with a six foot wingspan, you know, they have that long tail. We're talking like a seven foot long insect that has flown up and landed on his arm. Um, and it makes you wonder if like something that big could take a bite out of you. And I think about like the larval stage of one of these animals <laughs> and like, it would be the size of a small dog. It'd be just awful. You know what I'd say to that, you, need, <laughs> you just would need a big can of raid. You'd have to really have a big can of raid. You know what we have though, that that's in this area is, you know, there were giant millipedes and okay. they were like six feet long. We don't have the giant millipede body fossils, but we found a trackways of them. Wow. And we actually found in New Mexico, in northern New Mexico, right at the Pennsylvanian-Permian boundary. So technically, probably very late in the Pennsylvania, we found what is the biggest known trackway of one of these giant, you know, millipedes. And, and it's amazing. It looks like a bulldozer, just trackway. You wow. know? It's not as big as a, a human-made bulldozer. Um, so we had those big animals living here. And the, and the thinking about those big bugs, you know, bugs don't breathe like we do. They breathe more through just, you know, passive diffusion it, through their skin. So there are limits to the size of bugs based on how much oxygen is in the atmosphere. Hmm. And so one of the ideas, and, and this probably doesn't really work as well as I used to think, um, is that back in the Carboniferous, maybe, you know, there was higher level of oxygen. You know, right now there's about 21%. I've seen estimates, maybe there was 30% oxygen. And that's why the bugs got so big. The only problem with that is it turns out these giant millipedes survived into the Permian, and there's no evidence of unusually high levels of oxygen in the Permian. Yeah, they're, they're very interesting. I worked with a German guy named Jörg Schneider, who's a big expert on these giant millipedes. You know, because we have body parts, you know, we have the, the armor plates on their exoskeletons as fossils from Germany, France, and Europe. We've never found any in New Mexico. I've seen them. Uh, I was, I've worked in Alabama on a bunch of fossil footprints and there are body parts of the big millipedes there, you know, and um, yeah, it's a puzzle to me why they make it into the Permian. If oxygen, maybe we're wrong, maybe oxygen was higher than we think. And then the other big question is why do they go extinct? Why, you know, and that's always the big question for all most organisms, you know, uh, what a lot of people don't realize, you know, I, for us, for paleontologists, Extinction is a way of business. It's the way our business works. You know, whatever, 99% or however much of all the species that have ever lived are extinct. You know, things have been going extinct for billions of years. And so it's always an interesting question. Why did this animal or plant go extinct? And in the case of the big bugs, it's an interesting problem. Mm -hmm. Well, they say father time is undefeated. I guess unless you're a beetle and then you're doing just fine. <laughs> well, um... I don't know how Crichton would have explained that a mosquito sucked the blood out of a dragonfly and then got preserved. Is there amber specimens from the Permian or the Carboniferous? Not, not that I, not in a big way. I mean, there's always, in, in any coal bed, 
you know, there's often a little bit of amber because the amber comes from the sap, yeah. you know, from the resin from the trees. And there were certainly conifers all the way back. But I don't know of any real, you know, big amber deposits. You know, the big amber deposits are actually geologically quite young. The, in the beginning of Jurassic Park, I think they're in Dominica. You know, there's there's an, uh, the very first, you know, the guy there speaking yeah. in Spanish, the guy holds it up, mira, you know, tengo un mosquito aquí, you know, this kind of stuff. And, um, but that, those are all Miocene. You know, that's, I remember when I saw the movie, you think, okay, that's artistic license. <laughs> because one of the famous amber deposits, the Baltic amber, I think most of that's Eocene, you know, the Dominican ambers, they're, they're Miocene. So they all post-date the dinosaurs. So if you wanted to be a real uh, strict, you know, about it, you would say those mosquitoes in that amber, they might have bitten a rhinoceros or something, but they, they were living long post-dinosaur. But there is Cretaceous amber. But again, I don't think, you know, I'm not a big expert on amber, but I've never heard of what I would call a big commercial amber deposit in anything older than about Eocene. Mm, okay, interesting. But there are there are older ambers. I've seen even here in the Cretaceous here, if you go to northwestern New Mexico, there are a lot of coal beds in the Cretaceous. And if you're digging around, which we have done looking for plants and stuff, you'll find little blebs of amber. But they're quite small and all that. And nobody's ever found a amber hmm. in New Mexico that had an insect or anything in it. We're not a place to look for amber. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, speaking of things that maybe a mosquito might have bitten and then... Uh... <laughs> given us their DNA. In in the late Jurassic, you guys have uh, Coelophysis as the official state fossil for New Mexico. Uh, it's one of the earliest well-known animals. It was discovered in the 40s. Do you have the holotype for Coelophysis in your collection at the museum? No, no. Um, Coelophysis was actually originally discovered in the 1880s. 1880s, my goodness. By a guy named David Baldwin, who was a, a commercial collector working for Edward Drinker Cope. And you may know Cope was one of the great first paleontologist in the United States. And Cope named Coelophysis from a handful of bones, just a couple of vertebrae and some leg fragments. And the bones were hollow, at, which we now know is characteristic of the theropod, the meat-eating dinosaurs. But Cope named it Coelo, which comes from Greek coelios, and means hollow, physis form, hollow form. But before Cope died in the 1890s, he sold his collection to the American Museum in New York. And that's where the holotype is seen. Oh, okay. Now, what happened was Edwin Colbert, who was a very famous student of dinosaurs at the American Museum, uh, right after the Second World War, he thought, why don't we go back to New Mexico and look for more Coelophysis? So he did, he brought a crew out, and one of his crew members, George Whitaker, who was a fossil preparator, found this Coelophysis bone bed at Ghost Ranch which is unbelievable. I mean, it's one of the great dinosaur bone beds ever. And we have a block from that bone bed on display here at the museum. So what happened is Colbert found this bone bed. It almost surely was not the exact place where Baldwin collected. Baldwin's collecting place, as far as we can figure, was a few miles away. Because Baldwin was a very good collector. If he had found that bone bed, he wouldn't have been sending Copa a bag full of bone fragments. <laughs> Um, so in the late 40s, the American Museum dug on this bone bed and they took out all these blocks, you know, plastered them, blah, blah, blah. And they brought back so much to New York that they, they couldn't possibly repair it all. So they gave away some of the blocks. They gave a block to the Carnegie Museum, to the Smithsonian, et cetera, et cetera. 
And, but they didn't work out the bone bed. They dug as much as they could and then they quit and they buried it over. And then what happened in the early 1980s uh, at, at the Carnegie Museum, David Berman, who was a curator, he's still alive, he's pretty old. Dave Berman wanted to go back and dig up more. So he got permission to do that from the people who own Ghost Ranch. And Carnegie went in and they excavated. But one of the deals, this was been around 83, 84, uh, Berman agreed that one of the big blocks they collected would be given to the new Natural History Museum that the state of New Mexico was building in the 80s. That's us. So that's how we got this block. We got this big block. I mean, it's it's bigger than, you know, like a pickup truck engine compartment. It's a big <laughs> block of rock in plaster. So what we did was it, we prepared it finally, you know, opened it up, cleaned up all the rock. And our block has about 21 skeletons, partial skeletons of coelophysis, and it's on display in our Triassic Hall. And one of the interesting things about our block, though, was that we have this one coelophysis almost in the middle of the block, and it's, it's lying there like this. It's mostly the front half of the animal, but it's got a complete skull, and the skull had something that nobody had seen before. It had a sclerotic ring. Okay. Now, a sclerotic ring is a, in reptiles and, and, and some others, fish and whatnot, is a set of bones that go around the, the outside of the eye. And they help to control sort of the contraction and expansion of the lens. They're, they're useful in vision. And we actually wrote an article about this some years ago. The sclerotic ring of coelophysis is very bird-like. So here you've got, you know, this is the late Triassic. This would be, I would say, ghost ranch, bone bed, let's just say 210 million, something like that. And we're talking about one of the earliest theropod dinosaurs. In fact, it is really the earliest, really well-known theropod because dozens of skeletons have been studied and there's still people working on things. And here we have the sclerotic ring of this early, and it already shows, you know, there's a lot of things when you look at coelophysis that are very bird-like. Yeah, we're not gonna have the first bird for another 50, 60 million years, you know, in the, um, person of Archaeopteryx, late Jurassic. And there are late Jurassic theropods like Compsognathus that, you know, they, they just look like, almost like an Archaeopteryx with a feather stripped off. You know what I mean? And of course that's moot too. Maybe a better preserved Compsognathus would have some feathers. But it's very, it's really fascinating to look at coelophysis. The other thing we found in coelophysis that no one had seen, and we wrote about this, is it had a wishbone, oh. Hercules, fused clavicles. And that real, and you know, it's interesting. When I went to graduate school, my advisor was a guy named John Ostrom. He's a very famous dinosaur paleontologist. And so I learned a lot about dinosaurs. And at the time, you know, John Ostrom is the guy who really convinced everybody that Archaeopteryx was just a feathered dinosaur. He made the bird dinosaur connection. It had been suggested before, but John Ostrom is the one who really convinced everybody that that's where the connection is. But nobody knew that any of the meat-eating dinosaurs, this would have been in the late 70s, early 80s when I was in grad school, nobody knew that they had furcula, that they had wishbones. Well, since then, they found wishbones for a lot of Cretaceous meat-eaters. But we actually found the first one in a Triassic meat-eater. So, you know, that relationship between birds and dinosaurs runs very deep in the dinosaur or evolutionary tree. You know, you can look at coelophysis already, 60 million years before the first bird and say, gosh, 
This looks like something that's probably closely related to birds. Maybe it's a distant ancestor of birds. That's and amazing. I think that's a fair conclusion. And we were able to contribute to that through the furcula and the um, uh, sclerotic ring. And of course, it bore out, you know, the reason I think Dave Berman wanted to dig up the bone bed. He knew there was more to learn, you know. And uh, the reality is, you know, you can have a million fossils and it's that million and one fossil that might teach you something, <laughs> rest, you know, preserve something that you don't see in the rest. There are plenty of skulls of coelophysis in the Ghost Ranch blocks, but almost none of them still preserve the sclerotic ring, these delicate, thin little ring of bones that surrounds the eye. It's amazing how closely related they, they already were way back then. That's, that's a big surprise. <laughs> well, you know what it shows me? Here, here's what I always say. Yeah. It, you look like a turtle or you look like a crocodile or you look like a bird. It, it really just means that's a good place to be biologically speaking or evolutionarily speaking. There are a lot of things about bird anatomy, even if you're not flying, you know, the hollow bones lighten your skeleton, the sclerotic ring would increase visual acuity. The, the furcula would be an attachment site for bones, uh, for muscles that were, you know, involved in moving the shoulders and the forelimbs. And, you know, when people look at animals like turtles, oh, God, it's a turtle, who cares? No, being a turtle has been a good space for a couple hundred million years. Same with crocodiles, you know, same with cockroaches, which even go farther back. You know, so when you look at coelophysis and you say, geez, it's bird-like. And I say, yeah, that means that those features that are bird-like already had an adaptive purpose, a, a significance to the animal. And therefore, they were something that evolved. So something which is coelophysis like and kind of from that late triassic era as well but from the european world is uh is the procompsognathus we get the procompsognathus in jurassic park it's kind of the the momentum that draws the investigation into whether or not the park is safe because there's this idea hey this dinosaur seems to have gotten off your island and you say it's impossible for dinosaurs to get off your island so is it true? Is this one of your dinosaurs, et cetera, et cetera? So this is the, the reason people go to the island for a safety inspection and get murdered by dinosaurs because a procomsignathus appears. Like the coelacanth, they wonder if it's a, a discovery of an ancient animal or not. Right. But another good point is procomsignathus is one of the few dinosaurs in Jurassic Park that's actually a Jurassic dinosaur. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, when I, first, when I saw the first movie, I remember I turned to my wife and saying, why did they call this Cretaceous Park? The ductile <laughs> dinosaurs, the Tyrannosaurus, the Ceratopsian dinosaurs. Those are all classic Cretaceous dinosaurs that don't have a Well, the Ceratopsians do go back to the Jurassic, but the Tyrannosaurus and the, and the Hatrosaurus, the duckbills, don't. And yet Procompsognathus is very much a, a um, you know, a Jurassic, Triassic dinosaur type. You know, the sauropods are Jurassic, I think. They're brachiosaurs in Jurassic Park. So there was, again, that's, you know, Dilophosaurus, the, who kills a fat guy. That, that's an iconic moment. That's a great scene, right? Um, that's a Jurassic dinosaur. But the majority of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park are Cretaceous mm -hmm. dinosaurs. I think, and I think that's because they are very familiar dinosaurs. Tyrannosaurus, Triceratops, these are among the most familiar dinosaurs. Stegosaurus, Brachiosaurus, they're familiar. They're Jurassic. But uh, Dilophosaurus, before the movie, was probably a dinosaur that very few people had ever heard about. That's probably mm -hmm. true. So mm -hmm. if, uh, if you know a lot about a is would you be able to relate much of what 
could be understood about that to an animal like Procomsignathus? Would there be a lot in common, uh, do you think? Oh, yeah, they have an anatomical similarities that, that are quite extensive, you know. They're, they're closely related theropod dinosaurs. And when you're in the late Triassic, you have to remember, you know, most evolutionary transition occurs at small body size. So you don't have giant dinosaurs right off the bat in the Triassic. You know, the earliest dinosaurs, Coelophysis is maybe, maybe a full-blown, would be seven, eight feet long if you put the tail on it, and might have weighed, maybe weighed 100 pounds, probably lighter than that. It's not a big animal in the grand scheme of things. It is a fairly big animal, though, in the Triassic scheme of things. Okay. And there were prosauropod dinosaurs that appeared in the Triassic is perhaps the most famous, the best known from Germany. That's a fairly big animal. Again, it's probably, I don't know, maybe upwards of 20 feet long, but still it's nothing compared to a late Jurassic, 100 foot long Diplodocus or whatever. So when you're looking at the Triassic record of dinosaurs, you're looking at animals that really weren't all that big in the grand scheme of things, and they weren't the dominant land animals. You know, they're just part of the landscape. There are much bigger predators than Coelophysis, you know, um, moving around in the late Triassic world. Uh, there are much bigger plant eaters than some of the, you know, some of the earliest dinosaurs were probably no bigger than a chicken. Mm -hmm. But that's typical because, like I say, that the evolutionary trend is to start out relatively small. And then over time, animals tend to evolve or some at least to bigger body sizes. Well, this is good. I know in the book they said that they clone a lot of Procomsignathus because they believe that they are going to be good for cleaning up after the sauropods. Presumably these are going to be eating the feces, they're going to be the dung beetles that kind of keep the keep the biological waste in check. Uh, obviously a Procomsignathus really? might not have really? ever... I mean, really, come on. <laughs> I mean, they're little meat eaters. They're not going to be eating dinosaur droppings. They're going to be eating little lizard-like things yeah. and bugs. So that, that's, that's the like, question. You know, they've got narrow little jaws. They have a limber body size. They have long necks, um, which doesn't suggest that it's taking big mouthfuls of, uh, of hunks of meat off of things. It sounds like they're going to be snatching up uh, smaller stuff. What sort of things we're talking, you know, you're mentioning how they fit into the, the ecosystem. Where do, where do they fit in? What do you suppose was in a, a Coelophysid-like animal's diet? Well, again, you know, they're, they're, gonna, they're, they're predators, there's no question. The teeth, everything about them, they're meat eaters. And they're going to be eating small game, which means they're eating mammals, early mammals, who are quite small at the time, lizard-like animals. We know they ate each other. We know they were cannibals. And uh, that's been questioned, but we've reinforced that by looking at their droppings. And, and that shouldn't surprise us because what's going on today? What do predatory lizards, you know, we have collared lizards, which are these fascinating, and they get to be about this long, and they, they run on their hind legs. They're really neat. And they're little hunters. They're running around. They, they're hunting mice. They're hunting uh, other lizards. They're hunting, in some cases, insects, you know, et cetera. And that's, th there's probably more predators like that than there are big ones. You know what I mean? I mean, this is, I always like to hark back, you know, we managed to wipe out almost all the bison that lived in North America. So when the settlers came, there were millions of bison living on the plains. But the biologists would tell you there was actually more biomass in the rodents and rabbits that were living under the, uh, under the bison's feet. Mm. And so the reality of today's world is small animals are the norm. 
And there's no reason to think the Triassic or the Jurassic was any different. The difference is the reason our, our view of the fossil record is a bit biased towards bigger animals because their fossils, their bones tend to preserve more easily and they're easier to find. But, you know, um, and I'll give you an example. Colbert wrote a, a, a famous article to me in the 70s where he summarized the late Triassic vertebrates that were known from the Southwest, from Texas, New Mexico, Arizona, et cetera. And at the time, they only knew maybe 20 species and most of them were pretty big. Most of them were animals that were at least as big as you and I, maybe bigger, which in Triassic terms, big. Now, 50 years later, after people really deliberately looked for smaller vertebrate fossils, mostly by what we call screen washing, where you find, you know, little teeth and stuff like that. Now we probably know of over 100 species. And the 70 or 80 that we found since Colbert are all smaller than a German Shepherd dog. Most of them are the size of a house cat. You know, there's a lot of little animals out there that have not been found because of the way we collect. But I would assume that biodiversity in the Triassic was mostly in these things. So hunters, there's plenty for Coelophysis to hunt. There was all sorts of stuff out there to eat. And the fact, you know, you go to Ghost Ranch and I don't know how many skeletons have been found at Ghost Ranch, but it's in the hundreds. So you had a huge population of these animals. There had to be food. You know, and the other thing to think about too, and this is even more interesting when you talk about really big dinosaurs, is these dinosaurs came out of eggs. And when they hatched out of the eggs, they were little. You know, they were not big animals. So oh, they grew up to be bigger animals. So that means their diet probably changed through their life cycle. So some little Coelophysis, who's probably, you know, the size of a kitten or something, he's come out of an egg, is probably eating insects mostly. But by the time it gets bigger, then it starts to hunt down lizards or mammals. And of course, you know, what better way to discipline the kids than eat them? <laughs> you know, just turn around and eat, eat your young. And we, they did that too. Interesting <laughs> stuff. So uh, I wanted to ask about the, the eucelophysis. Um, mm -hmm. You'd be the right guy to ask, I think. It sounds like you're one of them among the authors to, to name the eucelophysis. Maybe you could tell me a bit about what you first found and then what it looks like uh, it wasn't what it first appeared to be from what yeah, I looked into. Ties, yeah, this ties us back to Baldwin and the discovery right. of Coelophysis. So a colleague of mine, Bob Sullivan, who's retired now, but he worked in Harrisburg at the State Museum, he and I went out with the notes and the records and everything to try to figure out where Baldwin found his stuff. And we found an area where there was a lot of fossil material. And it was probably, you know, you could never put your finger on Baldwin's locality because he had no maps. And, you know, he, he, he found something in 1880 and he told Cope, he wrote Cope and said, well, I found it at Arroyo Seco, which is a dry arroyo, okay? So we went to an Arroyo Seco and we found all these bones. And these were the bones Sullivan and I published them and named them Eucelophysis, true Coelophysis. But, you know, one of the things about early dinosaurs is, you know, it's a very rapidly developing field. So we thought when we named Eucelophysis that it was a dinosaur, as did our reviewers. You know, it was peer reviewed in the journal. Our reviewers agreed, the editor agreed that it published. Then the thinking changed, I don't know, maybe 10 years later. 
And, uh, and in particular, a, an Argentinian guy named Martin Escura restudied Eosilophysis and concluded that it wasn't quite a dinosaur. It was something that would be called a, like a dinosauromorph, a close relative of dinosaurs, but not actually a dinosaur. But, you know, I would say to you this, whether it's a dinosaur or dinosauromorph is more dependent on how you define dinosaur mm -hmm. than the animal was. Because if you look at Eosilophysis, and mind you, we have the hips and some of the leg bones. We don't have the whole animal. But it doesn't look that different from Coelophysis. You know, if you had seen those two animals, Coelophysis and Eusilophysis, out on the floodplain hunting, you might think, well, they're closely related species, or maybe they're even members of the same species. It's only when you get under the hood, so to speak, when you look at all the bones and you start to see there are anatomical differences. So the thinking now is that Eusilophysis is a dinosaur morph. It's a close relative, but in 10 years, they'll, they, they may change, people who work on this may change their mind mm -hmm. about what makes an animal a dinosaur versus a dinosaur morph, and it could become a dinosaur again. It's kind of like, you know, one day Pluto is a planet, the next day <laughs> it's not. And, you know, these are definitional problems, you know, is the way I see yeah. it. It's not the, the animal is no different as we understand it, whether it's a dinosaur or a dinosaur morph. But yeah, that's the story of Eusilophysis in a nutshell. What excites me about it is, is that some people are already looking at changing where that origin of dinosaurs begins. And the, they, so it's a trigger word. Whenever I see it, I get more excited because I've become very interested in following along with the, how the progress towards how silosaurids fit into the greater scheme of things. Because, so the, the theory is hypothesizing presently that perhaps the Ornithischian line of dinosaurs may have found some, its origins in this Silosaurid group, which is really, really a clever way to figure out where they came from, because that seems to be a continuing concern that uh, Ornithischians emerge, but from where? <laughs> we don't know what, where or why. Um, well, now, Silosaurus is interesting. Of course, this is a Polish late Triassic dinosaur. It's found in Poland, and I actually reviewed one of the early papers, whenever that was 20 or more years ago. And at the time, it's a lot like Eusilophysis. The guys who were writing it up said, oh, this is an early Ornithischian. We actually thought it was an Ornithischian oh, dinosaur. Wow. Now the thinking is Silosaurus is a dinosaur morph, but it may be close to the origin of Ornithischians. And one of the issues that's been kicked around is, you know, do Ornithischians and Saurischians, the two main groups of dinosaurs, come back to a common ancestor? Do they have separate ancestors? I, I don't know, you know, what I'm not sure what the consensus is on that at this point. I think the consensus is still what it was years ago, that they do come to a common ancestor, but there's certainly a lot of room for discussion. And one of the things that's happened in the last few decades is a lot of Triassic dinosaurs have simply been discovered in places like Argentina, Brazil, New Mexico, Arizona. There have been a lot of things found. You know, again, some of them are dinosaurs. Some of them are dinosaur morphs. And in some cases, some of them are other things. We described, one of my students, Adrian Hunt, described based on teeth back in the late 80s, something he found in New Mexico, in eastern New Mexico. He called it Revueltosaurus, after a creek, Revuelto Creek. And again, we thought it was an Ornithischian dinosaur. The reviewers thought that. Everybody, other people started finding these teeth, publishing them. But then, um, some years later, a skeleton was found with the teeth. And the thing isn't even a dinosaur. It's a it's some sort of more like a crocodile relative. It's somewhere, you know, out, you know, it's in what used to be called thecodonts, you know. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot to be learned 
about the origin of dinosaurs. And, and you know, a lot has been learned, man. If I, you and I were sitting here and compared, you know, what we know now, say, with what we knew in 1980 or something like that, it, it, it's there's no comparison. Hmm. And there, there are a lot of people out there looking for Triassic dinosaurs or near dinosaurs, and I'm, I'm sure we're going to find out a lot more about all that. Yeah, the Triassic is still such a really exciting place to look. Well, you know what's exciting about it? Uh, you know, a lot of paleontologists are interested in extinctions, yeah. in ending, and I am too. But I always thought beginnings were more interesting. So I always like to say, when you study Triassic dinosaurs, you're studying the plumbing underneath the dinosaur. You know, you're really studying how mm -hmm. it began and diversified. And that, that's, that's a fascinating subject. Well, and I, I, was, I always found it more interesting than studying dinosaur extinction per se. Yeah. You know, well, it's kind of depressing. Everybody goes extinct, you know, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Let's talk about the originations. Let's talk about all those Triassic dinosaurs dreaming big. Yeah. You know, what happened in the next 150 million years to my descendants, you know? Right. And, you know, there's a lot of fascinating uh, specialization. I mean, you don't have stegosaurs in the Triassic, but they show up in the Jurassic. And they're a very specialized group of dinosaur plant eaters. So, you know, it's almost unfair, if you want to know what I think, to call them all dinosaurs, to put them into one basket, because it is such a diverse group. It's, it's, to me, it's almost like the term mammal. If I say mammal, it's everything from bats to whales. So if I say dinosaur, it's everything from some giant sauropod to Procompsignathus, mm -hmm. you know, to Stegosaurus and whatnot. So, and, and that's why, you know, when you look at some of the big debates that have occurred in the last half century, for example, about dinosaur metabolism, were dinosaurs warm-blooded, were they cold-blooded? In the end, I would say the answer is some were warm-blooded and some were not. And, you know, there was a range of metabolisms in dinosaurs, just like there is in mammals today. Today we have these things, Tenrex, they're little shrews. They can barely maintain their body temperature. They're barely warm-blooded, but they're mammals nonetheless. Me, on the other hand, I know this, I go outside, my body temperature is real close to 99 degrees Fahrenheit, and then when the air temperature is 103, I don't like it. On the other hand, I have a box turtle who lives in my backyard here, and he is all about thermoregulating. You know, with the heat, he's estimated already a couple of times this summer. You know, you, you can watch him as a ectotherm, as a cold-blooded animal, trying to regulate his heat. I mean, I can't uh, imagine why a big sauropod dinosaur, I think, is physically impossible for them to be warm-blooded. You know, people have done the math. They couldn't dump heat. They didn't have enough surface area. So I think when you look at dinosaurs, you really need to step back and say, I'm looking at a really diverse long-lived and very complex group of animals. And so my ability to generalize about all dinosaurs is very limited. I, I think it, you got to take them on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. Tell me about Coelophysis, then tell me about T-Rex, then tell me maybe what's similar about them, and then of course there are huge and obvious differences. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're separated in time by, oh, I don't know, almost 150 million years, right? I mean, that's a big thing too. That's a really interesting that's, way to look at them as families instead of as a... Right, and then also look at them through time. Yeah. Realize, like, you know, I wrote a college textbook on dinosaurs, like you said, and at one point, I, it's a simplification, but it's an, I say, well, there were really five great dinosaur faunas. You know, there was the late Triassic, there was the early to middle Jurassic, the late Jurassic, you know, the early Cretaceous, the late Cretaceous. And if you look at, and you can break it down even more finely, but they're fundamentally different dinosaurs. That's why getting back to Jurassic Park, it really struck me. I remember turning to my wife saying, why, is, why isn't this place called Cretaceous Park? <laughs> well, 
Jurassic Park, Jurassic's an, uh, a better word than Cretaceous to teach everyone. For sure. I think it's shorter and it's simple. And a lot of people also make the mistake of confusing Cretaceous with like crustacean. You know, so you get people telling you it's the Cretaceous period. That'd be a different movie, Crustacean Park, yeah. <laughs> everybody knows, thanks to Michael Crichton and Steven Spielberg and the crew, everybody knows what the word Jurassic means. Mm -hmm. That's That's pretty incredible. Well, we're just about out of time here. I got to say, uh, I wanted to ask you more about uh, the, the great diversity of late Cretaceous dinosaurs you have uh, in New Mexico. I wanted to ask about the mammals, the appearance of mammals, and find parallels between the emergence of dinosaurs in the late Triassic and the emergence of mammals in the late Cretaceous. And I wanted to ask you more about um, intercontinental uh, faunal exchanges and things like that, how you find the same Pachycephalosaurus in the late Cretaceous of New Mexico, as you might find in Mongolia, and there's so many strange little things that go on with dinosaurs. We just don't have enough time for everything. It's too much. But uh, I guess we have to do this again sometime. <laughs> if, if you're down for it, I'd love to have you back. That's for sure. Um, sure. If people want to learn more about uh, what's going on with the New Mexico Museum of Natural History and Science or, or anything else, uh, where would they, they go to find out more about uh, what's going on? Well, they go to our website. Mm -hmm. I think it's nmnaturalhistory.org. And, you know, you. If I can put a plug in for yeah, this yeah, piece, yeah. I would tell you, if you're a dinosaur fan, we have three finished dinosaur halls, Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous, and they're devoted to New Mexico. So I always tell people, you want to find out about New Mexican dinosaurs, you plow through the books and you'll find Coelophysis or Parasaurolophus or whatever here or there. You can come here and get totally immersed in New Mexico's dinosaur record. And we and, and the other thing is, how many museums have a Triassic Hall? Almost no museums have a Triassic Hall. And so if you really, you know, if you were touring around and, and you know, it's funny because 20 years ago, USA Today listed us as one of the top 10 dinosaur museums in the United States because we have these three finished halls, Triassic, Jurassic, Cretaceous. They're very much centered around dinosaur fossils. They tell the stories of our New Mexican dinosaurs and their environments. And, you know, we have all sorts of famous dinosaurs. We've talked about Coelophysis. We have Tyrannosaurus here. We have Seismosaurus, this enormous sauropod. Of course, we have the Hadrosaurus, Parasaurolophus, Critosaurus. Our famous Ceratopsian is Penoceratops. Yeah. You know, the five-horned Ceratopsian. We, even, we have a life-size bronze statue of Penoceratops in front of the museum that everybody takes pictures with, and then the kids who don't read the signs even climb on the oh, no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I, I always invite people to visit our museum. I know there are people, you know, some years ago, the Japanese version of Esquire magazine approached us because they were doing a dinosaur tour of the United States for their readers, and they wanted to put us on the map as one of the places. And of course, if you come to New Mexico, you can come here, you can fly to Albuquerque, see our museum. You can drive up to Ghost Ranch. They have a museum there, a, a smaller museum of their own. In Tucumcari, if you know where that is, in eastern New Mexico, there's a dinosaur museum. And then this is one of the hidden gems of New Mexico. In northeastern New Mexico, near a town called Clayton, which even a lot of people in New Mexico, I think, think is in Texas, it's right. There's a dinosaur track site in the state park at Clayton where there are about 400 early Cretaceous dinosaur tracks. They're mostly ornithopod tracks and it's open. There's a boardwalk around it. There's exhibits, there's signage. Yeah, this is um, one of the biggest open air 
dinosaur track sites in the country that everyone can visit where there's interpretation, there's education. It's just, it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, if you will. It's, you know, it's five hours to drive there from Albuquerque. Wow. But nonetheless, you could, uh, you can really do a lot of dinosaur uh, tourism, if you will, or education in New Mexico. Plus we UFOs, are, yeah. <laughs> and we have the <laughs> UFOs and God knows, maybe the UFOs kidnap dinosaurs and, you know, on and on and on, you know. Um, yeah, there's it's there's a lot of uh, great natural history in this state, not just the paleontology, but geology, biology, you know, et cetera. But uh, yeah, I would encourage you if you're I call people if you're a dinosaur junkie. OK, that's yeah, well, I know you are right. You're a dinosaur junkie. You wouldn't, <laughs> this podcast, all dinosaur junkies, <clears throat> I challenge you, you need to come to Albuquerque and see our complete dinosaur halls. I think you'll really like them. And then if you have the time, drive up to Clayton, see the tracks, drive over to Ghost Ranch, see the famous, but they take tours there. They'll take you to the bone bed, which isn't worked out, by the way. It's been Carnegie dug and they buried it again. Hmm. So someday some young person who's listening to this is going to perhaps be a paleontologist and say, hey, let's go back to Ghost Ranch, open it up and see what more we can find. Well, I'm inspired. I'll be very interested. I can't wait now. (laughs) Well, this has been awesome. Uh, thank you so much for all of this time. And uh, I will be back in touch because I do want to hear more about <laughs> all the rest of it. Yeah, have a good one. Thank, thank you. Thank you. You too. All right. A tremendous thank you to Dr. Spencer Lucas. The ancient origin story of dinosaurs is so fascinating. And the, the old Permian and Triassic were so alien to what we know today. So it was great to have somebody on uh, to chat about that. Uh, in our text today, this week's text is Hammond, spanning from pages 390 to 393. In a synopsis, Yo, Hammond dies. (laughs) That's it. Characters, John Hammond. John's finding himself very uncomfortable in the tropical humidity at the bottom of this ravine on page 390. His broken ankle is swollen and has turned purple. He's dizzy, exhausted, and having trouble with his balance due to a combination of exertion, drinking the stream water, and the humidity on 391. Realizing that he isn't able to call loudly enough for rescue, he's taking matters into his own hands and is climbing up the ravine. And he's put all the blame for his present predicament on, quote, those damn kids. But he's exhausted and takes a break on the hill, believing that he's safe out here. Or down on the ravine, anyhow. We can confirm that he's 76 years old and believes that he's in peak condition for a man his age. And he expects to live to be 100 years old. And he'll do that by, quote, taking care of things as they come up. It sounds like he's being responsible in that sense. (laughs) He's then approached by a flock or a herd or a bunch Anyhow, of Procom Signathus is on 392, and he identifies that he's a crippled animal, and that they eat crippled animals, so he defends himself. Upon considering that their venomous bites are like sleep-inducing narcotics, Hammond fights back with sticks and stones. He's not only fighting for his life, he's fighting for his vision of a world filled with Jurassic Parks and delighted children, and in another 25 years of becoming very, very rich. Recall, InGen is presently in the $870 million in debt to a Japanese consortium, so ugh. He hops and climbs up the hill a bit further when a compy jumps on his back, but in defending himself, he loses his balance and slides down the hill again. Once on his back, a second compy bites his hand. He's been poisoned. Panicking, he scrambles back up, but another compy bites into his neck. Now blood flows over his hand, and down his neck, and his back. The intoxicants overcome him, and he slips into a delirious dream as the compies eat him alive. On page 393. And we have Procom Signathus in this chapter, too. These are dark green and chitter and chirp on page 391. They give Hammond a chill because they are scavengers. They don't look dangerous. They are about as big as chickens, and they move up and down with little nervous jerks. Their bites have a slow-acting venom used to kill crippled animals. 
They stare and watch and hop up and down, waving their little clawed hands on 392. They're not scared of Hammett. They overcome him, and they eat him. Localities, we have the ravine. The ravine has a stream at the bottom, and Hammond has climbed himself 40 feet up out of the ravine on 390. We're told he's only climbed a third of the distance up on 391, so the ravine uh, must be about approximately 120 feet deep. Uh, that's about a third of a football field, so just got to, but he's just got about 40 yards to go, and he'll be all in the clear. The copies come at Hammond from above in a large group, and he topples back down into the ravine. All right, we have stylistic techniques like italics. Those damn kids on 391 is Hammond's emotional lability reappearing. He's furious that the children were fooling around and he got scared by one of their games and has injured himself. He's put all the blame on his present predicament on them, not on himself. The italics show his heightened emotion and perhaps his condemnation as well. Crippled animals, in italics on 391, thinks Hammond to himself as he recalls that the compies are scavengers. This sends a chill down his spine because he, with his broken angle has become a crippled animal. This spine-tingling realization warrants the italics. So I like those. Uh, he uses a colon. Quote, there were all kinds of things out here. Colon. Rats, possums, snakes, on 391. And so this is a use of the colon very well. It uh, presents a list of items, and those items are then listed. So that's what a colon is for. Perfect. Semicolon. Quote, but somehow his voice hadn't carried far enough. Semicolon. He hadn't been rescued, on 391. Here, the semicolon is connecting two independent but related clauses in that cause-and-effect style that Crichton has employed throughout this novel. M-dash. Of course, he knew perfectly well he was in no danger. M-dash. He was almost within sight of his bungalow, for God's sake. M-dash. But he had to admit he was tired on 391, where the M-dash is serving as parentheses, and we're to read his emotional observation about being so close to the end zone in parallel with the rest of the considerations. Quote, Other wonders to create. M-dash on 391. Here the M-dash is used to serve as an interruption to Hammond's thoughts. Quote, then he saw a dark green animal hopping down the hill toward him. M-dash and another. M-dash and another on 391. And here the M-dashes are being used as interruptions again. The appearance of each new little critter is a fresh surprise for Hammond. Quote, the handler had said the poison was like a narcotic. M-dash. Peaceful. Dreamy. No pain. On 392. And here the M-dash is perhaps replacing a semicolon in an informal manner. The M-dash also creates a, a bit of a pause, as if one can take an extra moment for consideration of what those qualities might feel like. Exclamations! Shoo! Get out! Both with exclamations, says Hammond. The exclamation suggesting that he's yelling at them, threatening the compies on 392. We have some literary techniques, like the simile. He felt as if he were breathing through a sponge on 390, which is a vivid way to describe struggling to breathe in humidity. Too wet. Almost like you're choking. That's really good imagery. Quote, the handler had said the poison was like a narcotic. Peaceful, dreamy, no pain on 392. And here, the sleepy qualities of being intoxicated are being related onto the poisonous bite. Dramatic irony. When Hammond here is squeaking and chittering in the bushes, but believes that it's just some small animal like a rat, possum, or snake, Crichton is employing dramatic irony because we know, as readers, something that the point of view character does not know. These noises are dinosaurs, not harmless critters. In fact, if you, quote, know perfectly well you're not in danger, that's like shooting up a flare to let us know that dramatic irony is telling you that you are not in no danger, and quite likely the absolute opposite, especially in this book. Allusions, quote, Hammond lay very still, as still as a child in its crib, and he felt wonderfully peaceful. On page 392, Hammond is laying like a baby in its crib. We can picture this, but this isn't just transferring the properties of a baby sleeping in its crib to Hammond. It's also a powerful allusion to the beginning of the novel, when compies were attacking and killing and eating infants at the clinic in Bahia Anasco. Remember, all the way back in episode 6, New York, when Elena Morales was checking in on the newborns, but they were actually being eaten by compies? Remember that? Yeah, 
and she had lied about it to keep her job. Remember the babies that were dying in episode 20, when dinosaurs ruled the Earth, and we were talking about infant mortality rates. There had been reports of, quote, lizards biting infants in their cribs, and also, I might add, biting old people who were sleeping soundly. These lizard bites were sporadically reported in coastal villages from Ismoloya to Puentarinas on page 88. This quote on page 88 specifically mentions cribs and old people sleeping soundly. So Hammond lays very still, as still as a child in its crib, and he felt wonderfully peaceful. Alludes back to this moment in the novel where we're informed that the public health service in San Jose is asking questions. Because Hammond's missing compies, shout out to Justin Kylie of the Missing Compie podcast, are making a noticeable impact on that country's infant mortality rate. That's how many babies Hammond is responsible for killing. A quote noticeable amount. Hammond is getting his comeuppance here. Poetic justice is capturing him, but he dies ignorant and unremorseful and hauntingly unaware of what's even happening to him. It's a fascinating moment. It's creepy. Yeah, maybe haunting is the best word for it. All right, motifs. We have the illusion of control. A final moment here to give credit to my terrific guest, Melissa Ray, from episode 37, Bungalow. She made the poignant observation that in the motif of considering the concept of having complete control is a hoax, she made the connective observation that Hammond, quote, falls for it both figuratively and literally. Hammond goes down without any regrets, believing that nothing went wrong. And in fact, quote, nothing was wrong. No error had been made. Malcolm was quite incorrect in his analysis. While being eaten alive on page 392, Hammond was absolutely delusional from the start, completely overcome by this illusion. He never had control. And the novel's film adaptation so succinctly reifies, you never had control. That's the illusion from the restaurant scene in Spielberg's film. But Hammond's completely incorrect statement in this moment suggests that what he says about Malcolm is also completely incorrect. So, we should read, quote, Malcolm was quite incorrect in his analysis as entirely incorrect, and thus, the opposite is true, that Malcolm is correct in his analysis. Malcolm's analysis is this, complete control is impossible. Science will never offer complete control. Humility before nature is a necessity. Scientific power is too easily accessible. There's no accountability or humility before nature to tell us what to do with our power, and the end of the scientific era is occurring here and now with the death of John Hammond. In the scope of Jurassic Park as a novel, do you read this moment where they nuke the island and Hammond is defeated, that the biotechnology threat facing the Earth is contained, that the lid is replaced on Pandora's box and the world is safe from this last thrust by the epitome of the biotechnology industry's fall from grace? Or is this just one finger plugging a crack in the dam and a deluge is about to be unleashed on mankind even if Hammond is stopped? How do you see it? The scope and impact of the actions taken on Isla Nublar, and especially by Gennaro, can be greatly affected by viewing this through the lens of this ending the threat of big biotech, whereas it's neutered if it's just Gennaro learning to take responsibility for his actions. So there's two ways to look at this. Uh, Some are more impactful than others. In terms of uh, some discussion things, we have the island layout. This 120-foot deep ravine by the bungalow and the stream that flows at its bottom is a notable geological feature to include in our vision of Isla Nublar. Timeline. Quote, it feels like hours, on page 390, thinks Hammond of being down in the ravine, but after, quote, Hammond thought he had heard footsteps on the pass several times during the previous hour, and each time he had shouted for help on 391, this suggests he may have been down in the ravine for only about one hour. That makes this around 4.30 or 5 p.m., I think. Recall from episode 29, Big Rex, we learned that sunset in a Costa Rican August is around 5.45 p.m., and our chapters are heading towards approaching dark as one of our final chapters, which is surely right around that sundown time of day, likely around this 5.45, 6 p.m. time. I don't know if there are enough clues to specifically declare time of death on Hammond, but it's in the late afternoon, sure enough. 
Believe me, I know. Of course, he knew perfectly well he was in no danger. He was almost within sight of his bungalow, for God's sakes. But he had to admit he was tired. On 391 continues the trope of the believe me, I know casualties in this novel. He knows perfectly well he was in no danger. Phew, good for him. Hope he isn't wrong about that. Oh, a herd of dinosaurs ate you alive? Maybe he wasn't one of those book-smart guys anyhow. But tally this up to one of those things that Crichton just loves to do in Jurassic Park. Make someone unmistakably sure of something, important, and then be totally wrong about it. And that takes us to Crichton tropes. One of Crichton's great tropes is that there is no redemption for the villains in his novels. They are bad to the end. And Hammond is no exception. He fought for his vision, and he wouldn't be swayed. Never admit to a mistake. He would never stop. In this chapter, he's imagining the, the parks he's yet to open, the many years he plans to yet live, at least another 24 years, and he defiantly loses grasp of his life. He dies clinging to his vision, which proves that it was only ever a dream. Quote, lying on his back on the hillside, he began to feel strangely relaxed, detached from himself. But he realized that nothing was wrong. No error had been made. Malcolm was quite incorrect in his analysis on 392. Quote, Hammond lay very still, as still as a child in its crib, and he felt wonderfully peaceful. And as the venom takes hold, quote, Hammond felt only a slight pain, very slight, as the compi bent to chew his neck on 393. It's chilling and fitting and poetically ties together so many of the themes of this novel. The missing copies from the novel's beginning, all Malcolm's arguments, and Hammond embodying the personification of the biotechnology industry as his vision slips away, proving that the scientific era's vision for complete control is nothing but a dream. You never had control. That's the illusion. Hubris. We've covered hubris in a, as a principle pretty well with the deaths of Arnold and Wu and discussed poetic justice as well. And here, Crichton lays it out quite nicely. Quote, personally, he expected to live to be a hundred. Certainly he had plenty of reasons to live, other parks to build, other wonders to create, on 391, says Hammond. This is like when Stripe, the evil gremlin leader from Gremlins at the end of the 1984 film, is sticking his finger in the water fountain, brewing up a whole new batch of gremlins while holding Billy at gunpoint. It's about to start all over again. But poetic justice comes to the rescue. Hammond has been judged for his great pride and poetic justice will be meted out. All right, Hammond's dream. There's some specific vocabulary in use that challenges the concept of Hammond's dream. Before we described Hammond as the guy who provided the vision and the capital, and then wasn't specifically interested in the details. In fact, when the details get in the way of his vision, he tells his staff people to go to hell and do what he says. Hammond wasn't interested in DNA. His vision was for genuine dinosaurs, not compliant, controllable animals. And I think there's something to be said for Hammond as a visionary and not a dreamer. A notable distinction. He's putting in the work to make his vision a reality, whereas a dreamer is re relegated to live in a conditional, imaginary space. Early in the novel, recall Cowan, Swain, and Ross, the law firm employing Gennaro, that has some level of ownership in InGen. We covered them in episode 10, Cowan, Swain, and Ross. In that chapter, Gennaro labels Hammond as a dreamer, and his boss, Daniel Ross, elaborates he's a potentially dangerous dreamer. So Hammond, the visionary, isn't necessarily making his dreams come true. He's pushing towards a future that he can see. And Hammond's reluctance to make concessions to others that compromise his vision is well documented throughout the novel. And when confronted by a flock of Procomps Ignathuses on 392, he identifies that he's a crippled animal 
and they eat crippled animals. Some new language appears here. He recalls that their venomous bites are like a sleep-inducing narcotic, that the effects make you feel peaceful and dreamy. There's this reluctance to accept that his vision is merely a dream. He's been labeled a dreamer, and his ambitions have been described as only his dream, but he's hell-bent on making them a reality. This is the fight between having a vision and having a dream. Malcolm throughout the novel has countered that Hammond's vision is merely a dream. In episode 31, Stegosaur, Malcolm tells Gennaro that the idea of using science to achieve complete control is a dream. On 158, quote, they believe that prediction was just a function of keeping track of things. If you knew enough, you could predict anything. That's been a cherished scientific belief since Newton, says Malcolm on 158. Malcolm follows that by saying, chaos theory throws it right out the window. It says you can never predict certain phenomena at all. You can never predict the weather more than a few days away. All the money that has been spent on long-range forecasting about a half billion dollars in the last few decades is money wasted. It's a fool's errand. It's as pointless as trying to turn lead into gold. We look back at the alchemists and laugh at what they were trying to do, but future generations will laugh at us the same way. We tried the impossible and spent a lot of money doing it because, in fact, there are great categories of phenomena that are inherently unpredictable. Furthermore, quote, yes, and it is astonishing how few people care to hear it, Malcolm says. I gave all this information to Hammond long before he broke ground on this place. You're going to engineer a bunch of prehistoric animals and set them on an island? Fine. A lovely dream. Charming. But it won't go as planned. It is inherently unpredictable, just as the weather is on 159. Here's a subtextual conflict between Hammond and Malcolm that we haven't really described, but here's about as good as a time as any. Hammond's fighting for his vision. Malcolm says it's nothing more than a, quote, lovely dream. And much later, Malcolm declares that the, quote, dream of total control has died. Quote, and so the grand vision of science, hundreds of years old, the dream of total control has died in our century, and with it much of the justification, the rationale for science to do what it does, on page 313. Malcolm doesn't trust the science and believes we're moving beyond the scientific era. I believe this is the paradigm we're moving beyond that was discussed in the previous chapter. So perhaps Hammond's death also signals the end of the scientific era in Crichton's perspective. All right, thanks to my guest today, Dr. Spencer Lucas, for coming on the show to spend so much time in the late Triassic with me and with us. Thank you again. And uh, I want to sign off today thanking you for joining me. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryanesrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chicken's banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chicken's Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. Or you can find me on Twitter at RogersRyan22. Maybe it's called X. You can find me on X. Rogers Ryan 22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.